0: CHAPTER One of Lancashire by F. A. Bruton Lancashire by Francis Archibald Bruton This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Lancashire. Painted by Albert Woods, ARCA. Described by F. A. Bruton, M. A. Lit. D with thirty-two full-page illustrations in colour. A and C. Black Ltd., 4, 5 and 6 Soho Square, London, West 1, 1921. Chapter 1. The Boundaries of Lancashire. It has been said, by one not prone to indulge in superlatives, that there are not, perhaps, in the kingdom, two mountains more thoroughly pleasing to the eye than the Lancashire fells of the old man and Wetherlam. The same writer in another place has ventured the opinion that of all the monastic ruins in great britain there is none which combines extent and beauty of detail to a greater degree than furnace it was a river scene close to the lancashire border that ruskin noting the wonderful combination in it of moorland hill and sweet river and english forest foliage described as one of the loveliest in england and therefore in the world and it was in lancashire we may remember that ruskin found his own beautiful home of which he wrote himself on the occasion of his first visit in eighteen seventy one i think it gives the finest view i know in cumberland or lancashire perhaps these three estimates referring to three different phases of beauty may serve whether we agree with them or not as an introduction to an attempt to point out some of the charms of a district which was described by lord derby in a speech delivered recently at liverpool as the finest county in the greatest empire in the world Some such justification may indeed be considered necessary by those who, entering the county for the first time from the south-east, and seeing only the most forbidding features of its industrial areas, may be surprised to learn not only that Lancashire can boast of natural beauty, but that, as has been truly said, scenery more diversified than that of Lancashire does not exist in any English county. Its northern limits are bounded by the river to which Wordsworth dedicated a whole series of his sonnets, the river which he addresses as child of the clouds and cradled nursling of the mountains and it was in lancashire be it remembered not many miles from this very river that the boy wordsworth as the poet himself tells us saw the vision that led him to consecrate himself to his life's work strictly speaking however the extreme northern point of lancashire is not defined by the duddon it lies on the nab that projects into elterwater just where the infant a very sturdy infant, discharges the burden she has collected with the help of Greenburn from the slopes of Rhinos and Weatherlam. Her voice is hushed here, but only for a moment, for collecting the waters of Blay Tarn, Stickle Tarn and Elterwater, but taking all the honours to herself, she bursts out once more, and leaping Skeleth Force with a roar, rushes foaming through the woods to join the Rothay, after which the two streams glide noiselessly together into Windermere, close to the spot where, almost two millenniums ago, the Romans built their fort. Such is the extreme northern boundary of Lancashire. Elterwater is not one of our most beautiful lakes, but it is pleasant to sit on the bank of Elterwater near the boathouse in the sunshine and the stillness, and looking at this low wooded promontory behind which rises the grand mass of Wetherlam, to think that that is Lancashire that all lancashire lies immediately before us and then to consider what lancashire was when the romans came and thinking down through the centuries to watch the long story of its growth and development and then to remember what a tumult and turmoil what stress and strain and eager competition and joust of brain with brain and brain with material in exchange in mart in factory and workshop and dock in lecture room and study and school are implied by the word lancashire now the world over pleasant too to stand on the steep face of rhinos listening to the plash of innumerable rills and watch the baby brathy carrying her first contribution into little langdale tarn and then climbing to the three shire stone where the county limit is still more accurately defined to cross the watershed and breathing at large on this clear height to watch the mountain streams as they converged to form the slender thread of the duddon, amid unfruitful solitudes that seemed to upbraid the sun in heaven. Is it nothing that more than a century ago, one of our great nature poets sat on this very spot, and chanted the birth of the stream, whose cradle the frost had decked with spangled tissue, whose lullaby was the whistling blast, whose patron saint was desolation, the river whose curves he watched, thridding the rushes with sinuous laps, like a glistering snake, on whose broadening stream, as year by year he sauntered down its banks, he threaded the thirty-four sonnets that bear its name. This river, thus immortalized, forms for its whole course of twenty-five miles, the northwestern boundary of Lancashire. As we follow its course today, and it is as unspoilt now as when Wordsworth saw it and claimed it as his favorite river, let us not forget also, as we swing round to the left at cockley beck to glance for a moment at the road we are leaving as it climbs towards the next pass from the head of windermere to the point we have now reached the boundary of lancashire coincides very nearly with the road that in the first century of our era linked the three roman forts at waterhead near ambleside at that lone camp on hard knots height and at Ravenglass. there can be no question about this Those who have pushed their bicycles over these two passes know that nature in this case has not provided a choice of routes. Here the Romans could only conquer by obeying, and it is perhaps more than likely that they found a road here when they first came. If the Miss Lower, as the traveller of today, traces this stream still further along its wild and lonely valley, he will appreciate Wordsworth's epithets all the more fully, and as he reaches the point where the road sweeps away to the left, because it is impossible that it should follow the river through the deep rocky chasm it has cut for itself and passes on to the tiny hamlet made immortal by the poet's tribute to its pastor's piety he may well pause to contemplate the spot which scenery and tradition have combined to make so interesting the poet has himself told the story of wonderful walker the many-sided curate of seathwaite in his own notes to the sonnet dedicated to him and the story need not be repeated here But no less than eight of the sonnets, we may point out, are focused on this romantic spot. At one moment we are gazing into the deep chasm where some awful spirit has compelled the river to leave the haunts of men. At the next we are watching a pair of lovers cross the zone of stepping stones, still quite intact below the gorge. And anon we are asked to contemplate. A pastor such as Chaucer's verse portrayed, such as the heaven-taught skill of Herbert Drew, and tender goldsmith crowned with deathless praise. No imperial bird of Rome hovers above us today. Only the ceaseless chatter of the jackdaws comes from the black cliffs, to which the dwarf birches cling far above the roaring torrent, just as they cling, you remember, to the steep walls of the Norwegian fjords. Wordsworth was unusually modest about the fame of his hero. A century, he says, shall hear his name pronounced, then shall the slowly gathering twilight end in utter night. More than a century has passed since those words were written. The church in which Walker taught his little school has vanished, but the simple slab of festiniog slate by the old yew, and the quaint little brass within the modern edifice, are likely to tell their tale for many a year yet. If we have followed the duddon so far, we may with advantage at this point climb the hillside by the old pack-horse road that crosses Walna Scar at a height of two thousand feet and watch the further course of the river from above. From Cars, for example, from Dow Crag at the foot of whose steep screes, perhaps the finest screes in Lancashire, lies the weird little goat's water, or from the summit of the old man himself. As we climb to the scar, the pipits pass anxiously with short jerky flights, from boulder to boulder, as though we might molest their newly chosen homes, and then, rising a little way into the air, descend slowly with outstretched wings, piping their sweet accelerando all the while. As we proceed northwards along the ridge, the view widens perceptibly. Seathwaite Tarn, from which Barrow now draws its water, appears deep down on the west. Morecambe Bay, Coniston Water, Windermere and Esthwaite are all within sight, and when we reach the highest point in Lancashire, 2,633 feet above sea level, we have before us a view that is not surpassed by that from any of the more lofty of the lake mountains. Indeed, the late Mr. Baddeley, to whom tourists of the English Lake District owe so much, and whose aim it was to apportion the honours fairly among the various peaks, described this view as unique in the happy blending of mountain, sea, inland lake and rich lowland we are here standing on the highest point of lancashire the highest point south of the sands as we shall see in a moment is on the steep slopes of Greygarth, but this falls short of the old man by at least six hundred feet ruskin climbed to this point first in eighteen sixty seven and contrasting the view with that obtained from the riggy culm he summed up his impression by saying that he saw the lakes of coniston and windermere lying in the vastest space of sweet cultivated country he had ever looked upon as we are concerned for the moment with perambulating the boundaries of the county, we shall perhaps extend our walk. It's quite easy, to the top of Weatherlam in order to view the Braithy Valley once more, and to the summit of Greyfriar, for the look right down to the lower reaches of the Duddon. Standing here at the top of Lancashire, we have a view that in addition to its rich variety, embraces at one sweep the whole Scarfell group, with the fells beyond, as well as Skiddaw, Saddleback, Helvellyn, Ingleborough, Snowdon and the isle of man nor is it less interesting in the detail it affords for our immediate purpose as we've climbed gradually higher the lakes which at first seemed to be cut up into lakelets by projecting nabs have opened out till now coniston lies below us complete circled by its knotty fells the crate gleaming like a white ribbon in the distance wordsworth's Esthwaite lies beyond nestling in softer scenery and these are both Lancashire lakes in their entirety. Windermere we may not claim, only its shores from Waterhead all the way down to its western side, and up its eastern border as far as Gill Head, from which the boundary runs eastwards to the Winster, and follows that river all the way to the Kent Estuary, so completely isolating this part of the county from Lancashire south of the sands. Thus, as is sometimes said, One half of each of the Windermere boathouses on this shore is in Westmorland, and the other half in Lancashire. Indeed, the question of having voting qualifications in two different counties for a single boathouse is said to have actually arisen, the county boundary varying, I suppose, with the height of the water. And those who have seen days of continuous rain in this region know how roads as well as lakeside meadows can be flooded when the streams are full. Looking beyond the lakes we note first the dark whale-backed hill that ends the fells to the south-west across the duddon we shall see this hill again later from rivington pike Now good ever comes round black Combe, says the old furnace proverb similarly now good ever comes over the Dunmail rays is another illustration of the ancient antagonism to the north felt by the sturdy dalesmen whose lot was cast in this district so curiously isolated by a great mountain wall above and the silver sea below lower down the duddon than seathwaite beyond Dunnerdale, the wave-washed churchyard of Ulfa, the last place mentioned in the sonnets lies across the county boundary sweeping our glass gradually southwards over the chimneys of millam and broughton we see the river suddenly expand to an estuary across which now runs the black line of the railway viaduct here majestic duddon glides unfettered and in silence over smooth flat sands and with a last reminiscence of its source the poet addressing it once more as cloud-born stream sees in it an image of what his own life must be further south the long line of walney island comes in view over the chimneys of barrow and the great airship hangar between eighteen forty seven and nineteen eleven the population of barrow it is worth noting in passing increased from two hundred and thirty five to sixty three thousand seven hundred and seventy beyond peel and Falney islands so rich in history and tradition the walney lighthouse is clearly seen then comes the lighthouse like tower erected on hode hill above ulverston in memory of sir john barrow after which we sweep over the Leven estuary into which the waters of windermere coniston and Esthwaite pour and in the midst of which a black speck shows us chapel island where as Wordsworth tells us in his prelude, the vested priest said matins at the hour that suited those who crossed the sands with ebb of morning tide. Beyond this again, our view extends over Cartmell and right round the sweep of Morecambe Bay. One pertinent question arises, viz., when and how were these limits fixed? The answer gives us our first glimpse into the picturesque history of this picturesque district. For the furnace fells were for a long time a hinterland, a no-man's-land, and when in the 12th century an abbot of Furness received powers over territories whose boundaries were ill-defined, bordering on those, equally ill-defined, of the Baron of Kendal, it was natural that disputes should arise. To settle these, somewhere about the year 1160, thirty men were sworn, and their decision, ratified by Royal Charter of Henry the Second, was taken as final. One extract from the document will suffice. The boundary of the abbot's territory on the north and east was to run from where the water descends from Rhinos into Little Langdale, and thence to Elterwater, and from there by Braithay into Windermere, and so by Windermere as far as the Leven, and so by the Leven even to the sea. Southeast of this line lay Cartmel, whose limits we have already defined. We have the actual names of these thirty men; many of them are Norse who laid down this boundary more than seven and a half centuries ago and we have already seen that much of their ruling is still in force as regards the present limits of the county such are the boundaries of lancashire north of the sands at the extreme southern limit of the county may still be seen unspoilt albeit within sight of some of the most unbeautiful products of the industrial revolution the entirely rural hamlet of lancashire hale i had some twenty miles of driving through very pretty country wrote Mrs. Carlyle, from Liverpool to her husband in 1844, and saw a beautifulest village in all England, called Hale, where there is a grave of some human phenomenon called the Child of Hale. Did you ever hear of him? The skeleton was raised some years ago by people who considered the seeing is believing, and found of the reputed length. Here is his tombstone. Sketch follows. The Little Village Green at Hale like so many others is now occupied by a war memorial and german guns but in the churchyard the inscription is still clearly legible on the tombstone of the famous child recording that he stood nine feet three and at the hall just across the park may be seen a life-size portrait of this prodigy who was granted an interview with james the and received a gift from him and died at the age of forty eight the lighthouse some distance beyond the church The Mersey is here two miles wide, will mark for us the southernmost point of Lancashire, though strictly speaking the county boundary lies far out among the shifting sands of the river, following a curve whose variance from the present channel presumably shows how much that channel has changed its position since the boundary was fixed. It is well known to geologists, and Lord Avebury made use of the fact to illustrate the chapter on rivers in his Scenery of England. That the course of the mersey in this region in pre-glacial times was quite different from that which the river takes today it then ran through the present site of widness in a channel at least three times as deep and probably much broader this old bed is now choked with glacial drift more remarkable still perhaps to the visitor of today is the fact that centuries ago the mersey was regularly forded at this point molyneux crossed the river here with a royalist force in 1643 and Prince Rupert adopted the same route in the following year, on the occasion of his rapid retreat through Lancashire after the Battle of Marston Moor. Almost within living memory, horses were taken over this ford for hunting in Cheshire. It's easy to understand how the deepening of Crosby Channel, which forms the neck of the bottle-shaped estuary, has increased the volume of water that every tide brings up the Mersey, and long precluded the use of such fords. Two other points of interest may detain the visitor at Hale, some distance north of the village stands the interesting moated grange known as the Hut. This district, by the way, is one of the best for wheat growing in all Lancashire, and almost opposite to Hale, among the mud flats across the water, the monks used to complain that their building was constantly flooded, Once stood the Cistercian Abbey of Stanlaw, which was translated to North Lancashire in the 13th century, and there became the famous Abbey of Wally. Mrs. Carlyle tells her husband that Hale is one of the lions of the Liverpool district, and it is still a favourite resort, but when she proceeds to describe Speak Hall, which was passed on the homeward journey, as the queerest old rickle of boards and plaster that I have ever set eyes on, we shall perhaps consider that playful exaggeration has passed its limit, for Speak Hall, built mainly in the sixteenth century, is one of the most beautiful black-and-white houses left in the county. East and west from this pretty stretch of green-wooded shore, the Mersey forms the southern boundary of Lancashire. Down its eastern side runs the noble mountain barrier, so graphically described by the late W.T. Arnold, who loved these wild high moorlands, as the frayed Pennine edge of urban Lancashire, where the factory hooter wakes the grouse, and you hear the clogs before dawn, tapping a dotted line of sound through peat and Bracken. The huge, deep mountains of John Wesley's diary, the lime, lima, or boundary, perhaps, that gives us such names as Ashton infra Lima, the natural bastion that has not only on occasion protected the county from attack, but has been largely instrumental in giving it its distinctive character, the high moors that form the backbone of England, where, to quote Arnold once more, the puff of a child's breath on a still day might send a falling snowflake to the German ocean, or, if the child turned to the Atlantic, where, As if to prove his statement, Yorkshire Calder and Lancashire Calder rise almost at the same spot, and flow to opposite sides of England, the same being nearly true, though the sources of these four streams all lie outside of Lancashire, of Wharf and Ribble, as well as of Loon and Swale. The great mountain wall that checks the moisture-laden winds that sweep in from the Atlantic, and sends their burden of water back over Lancashire in storm and stream, in torrents that pour down its steep face, to form the beautiful Lancashire rivers that wind between the hills and across the plains to the sea. For the western boundary of the county is the sea, and the mountains and the sea, to borrow Mr. Bellock's figure, lean towards one another, making two sides of a triangle that meet above at Morecambe Bay. The base of the triangle being supplied by the tortuous Mersey, by no means a pleasing water, according to the testimony of Thomas Pennant, who wrote in the 18th century, and no one will maintain that any efforts have been made since then to enhance its beauty indeed the mersey is doubly unfortunate it only becomes a river in the first place by the union of the tame and the ethero or should we say the Goit, at stockport and between earlham and warrington a ship canal has been spliced into it leaving the ancient windings of the poor mutilated stream as detached and atrophied loops serving no purpose now but that of marking the ancient county boundary Leland even tells us that the river in his time was not called the mersey at all beyond runcorn it was there known as runcorn water above and beyond the triangle just described and separated from it by land and sea lies the detached district of lakeland lancashire lonsdale north of the sands known also beyond cartmel as high and low Furness, over which for more than four centuries the abbots of that title reigned supreme even so we have by no means exhausted the boundaries of Lancashire. Indeed, parts of those yet to be mentioned may be among the most beautiful of all, for the Pennines do not define the whole of its eastern limits. After running past Bowlesworth, familiar to readers of Halliwell Sutcliffe's stories, and sweeping round the forests of Traudan and Bendel, immortalised by Harrison Ainsworth in the Lancashire Witches, and actually cutting across the foothills of Pendle himself, the boundary winds westwards, along the pretty Ingsbeck, almost from its source to its junction with the Ribble, just beyond Smithy's Bridge. From this point, for perhaps something like twenty miles, Lancashire shares with Yorkshire two of the most beautiful rivers in England. From the point we have just mentioned, we follow the Ribble to the waters meet, where the Hodder joins it on the opposite side, and then trace the Hodder upwards to beyond Whitewell. We are now in the heart of the wild and beautiful forest of Bowland, and here, hard by a noble sycamore that stands at the roadside, the boundary suddenly leaves the river and climbs to the heights of Sykes Fell. But this is no part of the Pennines. Over the high fells of Sykes and Boland and Burn Moor, the line runs, touching 1,700 feet more than once. We may meet it again by walking on to Dunsop Bridge, and then turning up the trough of Boland to the Shirestone. From Burn Moor the line descends to the Wenning, And then comes the most remarkable feature, for it suddenly reaches the Pennines once more, running up Greygarth almost to its summit, where Yorkshire and Westmorland join hands at a height of at least two thousand feet, and as suddenly turns back and descends as rapidly as it mounted, and then, crossing the Loon at right angles a little below Kirby Longsdale, it zigzags westward, and finally loses itself in the wide estuary of the Kent. End of chapter 1